turn with me this morning toward the back pages of your Bible to the book of James and to the third chapter and to the first verse. So the epistle of James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and we will read the first 13 verses of chapter 3. James 3, 1 through 13. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Father, I pray for wisdom today as I open my mouth, as I use my tongue, remembering that there is a a stricter standard for those who stand in front of your people and speak. But for all of us, Lord, let us use our tongues to praise you and not to curse one another. Let me use my tongue now to praise you, to instruct and stir up your people for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now what we have before us just now is, of course, something of a well-known passage in Christian circles, or at least we know well James's most famous metaphor from this passage, which is to compare the tongue, to compare the human capacity for speech to a wild animal that is very difficult to tame. So maybe you picture a wild bronco somewhere out in the wilds of the Dakotas who just cannot be broken in. Or a cheetah brought to the Cincinnati Zoo, but try as they might, the keepers just cannot seem to train this particular one and render it safe for the cheetah run. That's what the tongue is like, we're told. Every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. No one can tame the tongue. 
And yet the implication of this passage is that we who follow Christ must tame the tongue. Indeed, if we want to honor God, if we want to live above reproach, we can't not tame our tongues. We must tame them. Because after James has finished describing all the harm that they can do, he says at the end of verse 10, very straightforwardly, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. They are this way. We seem to have the most trouble in the world taming our tongues, but these things ought not to be this way. And if you comb back through the passage, you'll discover some reasons why these things ought not to be this way. Some reasons why we must tame our tongues. One is because, as we see there in verse 6, the tongue is like a fire that wreaks havoc in our own lives. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. The tongue is like a fire wreaking havoc in our own lives, he says. Because fires aren't easily containable, are they? If you have a fire that gets out of control in your kitchen, it can easily spread to the dining room. And from the dining room to the carpeted stairs, and from the carpeted stairs down the hallway to the bed sheets, and so on. And he says, that's how sin in your mouth works too. Like a fire. So that sin in your speech soon becomes sin in many other areas of your life as well. If the tongue is on fire, James says, if the tongue is lit up with sin, it sets on fire the course of our life, our whole life. And then not only is the tongue like a fire that creates havoc in our own lives, but it's also like a poison in verses 8 and 9, which brings pain into the lives of others as well. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, verse 9, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. With it we curse men. It's a poison, he says. And the venom that we inject into others' veins by means of the poison of our words can often do far more damage, as you know, than sticks and stones. Constant criticism, slander, gossip, disrespect, yelling and screaming. All of these things are like a syringe jabbed into the heart of your family member or your co-worker or your church family. Sometimes shooting, sometimes slow dripping, but always injecting poison into their veins. The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison which brings pain into the lives of other people. And not only is the untamed tongue a fire in our own lives and a poisonous syringe in the life of others, but then James also says that the sins of our tongues are incongruous, inconsistent, incompatible with the praise that we just finished singing. Look at verses 9 and 10. With it, we bless our Lord and Father... And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. It just doesn't make sense that two such incongruous, incompatible sorts of speech should come out of the same mouths 
as often come out of ours. Verses 11 and 12, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. But if those things are true, then why is it, James is saying, that praise and cursing, praise and slander, praise and belittling can come from the same fountain, namely your lips and your tongue? So there you have three reasons why you should begin to crack the whip on yourself and get your tongue under control. Because if left untamed, it will be a fire in your own life. It will be a poison in the life of others. And because the fresh waters of praise and the bitter waters that so often spring from our lips just don't go together. And such incongruity certainly does not honor the Lord. And I hope you'll take all of this and put it into service in your life. And yet, having said all that, I don't want to preach to you this morning primarily about the tongue, important as this most practical subject is, but rather in hearing what James says about the tongue and about the reasons we should seek to tame the tongue, I want to zero in even more closely on one of the reasons beneath these reasons. We've just said that one of the reasons why we shouldn't curse men, slander men, belittle men, constantly criticize men, yell and scream at men, we've just said that one of the reasons we shouldn't do these things is because these things harm other people. They poison other people. But the question is, why does that even matter? Why should other people be valuable in our eyes at all? So valuable that we take care even how we speak to them. Is this just pragmatics? Should we be kind to others simply because that will make life easier for us and because when people treat one another well, society functions much better and life goes much smoother for everyone? Is that the reason? All that is true, of course. Life will be much easier for us and for our neighbors and for the world in general if we would all just treat one another well in the realm of our words. But is that all we have to say? Well, under evolutionary thinking, I'm afraid it is. We're surrounded by this kind of thinking all the time, and the evolutionary theory posits not that man was created, but that he evolved from lesser life forms by one lucky adaptation after another until he finally became what he is today. And I stress that the whole of it happened, so the theory goes, the whole of our existence as a human race is a result of random happenstances. And if that's the case, if we're the result of mere chance, then there's no inherent value in the human race, no fixed value or dignity which then creates an immovable anchor point from which we draw our moral decisions. We got to the top of the food chain by a series of randomly pragmatic adaptations, adaptations that made life easier for us, And now we build our morality around pragmatism as well. What will make life easier for us? And so when evolutionary theory is taken to its logical conclusion, the end result is that though we often treat each other nicely, we do it for the same reason we step on cockroaches, simply because it makes life a little bit easier. You know, if there were no cockroaches in this house, and if all of us would just speak kindly to one another, then wouldn't life be so much better? 
That's the pragmatic approach. We speak kindly to other people. We tame our tongues because it makes our lives easier. And while that may be true, and while even the Bible tells us that a gentle answer turns away wrath, this is not the reason beneath the reason given here in James. So back now to the text of James 3. James says in verses 8 and 9 that we should tame our tongues because loose tongues harm other people, because untamed tongues are like poison in other people's veins. That's one reason for taming the tongue. But what is the reason beneath that reason, according to James? Why does it even matter how we treat other people and how we make them feel? Well, the answer in verse 9 is not pragmatism, is not because it makes life easier for us all, but the answer in verse 9 is rather the fact that these men whom we curse, these women whom we poison, have been made in the likeness of God. I hope you picked that up as we read verses 8 and 9. That's the key to the whole passage. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. That is why it is so evil to tear other people down with our words. Not merely because it makes the workplace a little more tense, or because it puts the whole family a little bit on edge, but because whether our nasty words do those things or not, the person we are tearing down was created in the likeness or image of God. And when we tear down God's image, we attack Him personally. Just for an example, think of what message it would send if someone went to our nation's capital and spray-painted graffiti all over that grand statue of Abraham Lincoln. What disrespect would that show to one of our nation's greatest statesmen? But you see, God hasn't put His image in the world by means of statues. He's put it in the world by means of living, breathing human beings who have been made in His likeness. And do we find ourselves verbally abusing them? Do we find ourselves spewing poison at them by our words, by our contentious words, our critical words, our unkind words? Whenever we do, and for many of us, it's far more often than we'd care to admit, whenever we curse, slander, gossip about, belittle other people, we are defaming the very likeness of God. That's why, incidentally, it's just as bad in God's sight to talk about someone behind their back as it is to be nasty to their face. Pragmatically, if you wait until they leave the room, less harm may come by your words when you whisper your curses behind your hands, but you're besmirching the image of God in them just the same. And this is what I want to preach about this morning from the end of verse 9. The likeness of God. Or the image of God, as some translations put it, the two words being synonymous. Because the logic that James rests upon here, that we shouldn't curse men because they have been made in the likeness of God, that same logic can be applied to a whole host of other ways in which we sin against our fellow men. So for instance, why shouldn't we be racist Not because it's the 21st century and we 21st century people are so sophisticated that we've figured out that the world goes around much more smoothly when everyone has a place at the table and we all treat one another well. That's surely true and it can be motivational, but it's not the ultimate reason why we should shun racism. We should shun racism 
in any century because black, white, Hispanic, Asian, and so on have all been made in the image of God. And by the same token, why is child abuse such a horrific thing? Well, it's made worse by the fact that children are helpless. Yes, there's no doubt about that. But child abuse is bad most of all because these children are bearers of the image of the Almighty. And why is neglect of the elderly so sad? And why are euthanasia and abortion so vile? Not purely for pragmatic reasons. Indeed, it is for pragmatic reasons that people are neglecting and killing in the first place. Because it makes life easier. And so we stand for the unborn and we defend and minister to the elderly not for the sake of pragmatism, not because it's the road of least resistance. It's not. We do it because each and every one of them has been made in the likeness of God. And that likeness is worth defending and honoring and loving and ministering to at all costs and at all difficulties. Indeed, you might back this whole discussion up all the way back to the book of Exodus and to the Ten Commandments, the last six of which deal with how we treat other people. And we could ask the question, well, why should I honor my parents? Why shouldn't I kill? Why not commit adultery? Why not steal? Why not bear false witness against the neighbor? Why shouldn't I covet? That last one is especially important. Why shouldn't I covet? It's not hurting anybody else. Well, the first reason you shouldn't do those things is because God, who redeems his people, says so. And that's reason enough. But if you were to venture to ask him politely why he says so, why he has all these commandments about how we treat other people, the ultimate answer would boil down to the very same thing we see here in James 3.9. Why has God commanded all these things regarding your treatment of other people? Because your parents in the fifth commandment and your spouse in the seventh commandment and the people you might be tempted to steal from or kill or bear false witness against, the people whose stuff you might be coveting, all of them have been made in the likeness of God. That's the reason for the final six commandments and for all the ways that they are applied in all the various other teachings of the Bible. Every man... Every woman, every girl, and every boy that you will encounter, black or white, sick or well, born or unborn, young or old, working or disabled, high IQ or low, godly or ungodly, every last one of them has been made in the likeness of God. And that is why you shouldn't curse them, says James. And that is why you shouldn't sin against them in any of these other ways. The image of God. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And then on that sixth day of creation, the Lord said this, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then Moses summarizes it like this in the next verse, Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, God created mankind in his own image. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, the image or likeness of God in man is not a physical likeness. It's not that man looks like God physically because God is spirit. God does not have a physical form. Sometimes he appeared in physical form in times of old as when he passed by Moses and showed him his back in the book of Exodus. But that was simply a temporary appearance that God took on to accommodate to Moses' wishes and Moses' desire to see God's glory. But God, in his essential nature, does not have a physical back or a physical face or any sort of physicality whatsoever. When God speaks about those things, he's speaking in a way that accommodates how we can understand. But God ultimately is spirit. And so we shouldn't imagine that our being made in God's likeness means that we somehow physically look like him, that he walks on two legs and has five fingers like we do and so on. Rather, the image of God in us has to do with the unseen parts of us, with our ability to reason, with our proficiency at intelligent communication, with our high capacity for relationships, with our moral capability of knowing right from wrong. Animals don't do any of these things on any significant level. But you and I most certainly do. And why do we? Not because we're at the top of the evolutionary chain. We reason because God reasons. And God made us. We intelligently communicate because God is an intelligent communicator. We relate because God is relational. Even before he made us and related to us in the Trinity, he is relational. And we are moral beings knowing right from wrong because God is a moral being. And because we, James 3.9, have been made in his likeness, we are all these things. Because God, Genesis 1, created man in his own image, we are who we are in the image of God. Now you might ask, Yes, we were made in the image of God, but wasn't that image devastatingly marred just two chapters later in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled and when the human race fell into depravity? Doesn't Paul say that through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners? And don't we see the results of that depravity in the succeeding pages of Genesis where we read all sorts of bad things going on and we read... Concerning mankind, a sentence like this, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And didn't Paul say that there is no one who does good, there is not even one, and that there is none who seeks for God? And if all that is so, can we really still, after Genesis 3, say that mankind is still in the image of God? We're not very much like God in so many ways, are we? These are important questions. How do we answer them? How do we know that mankind created before the fall in the image of God is still an image bearer even after his devastating fall into sin? Well, our text in James 3.9 helps provide the answer, doesn't it? Because James here speaks of men and women who were alive in his own day, people who were being mistreated in his own day, and he says of them that, They, these people, far after the fall, have been made in the likeness of God. 
so that whatever the fall did to these people and whatever it has done to the human race as a whole, and it's done a lot worse to us than sometimes we realize, but whatever the fall did, James is indicating here that it did not completely snuff out the image of God in us. Mankind still reasons on a far higher level and still communicates far more intelligently and forms relationships far more complexly than the animals are capable of doing. The image of God still assuredly shines through in all these ways, though not as brilliantly as before. And even in his moral capacity, although man doesn't act on what he knows, mankind still understands right and wrong far more than any animal is capable of doing. And so what we have to say then is that the image of God in man has been devastatingly marred intellectually, relationally, communicatively, and especially morally, which is what spoils all those others, and yet the likeness is still there, cracked though the mirror has become. And maybe that's the best analogy for understanding how man can have fallen so far and been so severely shattered in his nature by sin, and yet still somehow bear the image of God on his soul. We are like a shattered mirror. Not with just a handful of fault lines streaking here and there, but looking like a thousand tiny mosaic tiles all jammed together to form a single broken, mangled looking glass. And yet, while the image the mirror reflects is now incredibly distorted, yet it still reflects nonetheless. And what it reflects, albeit so often poorly, is still the same image as before, the image of our maker. Now in many a biblical passage and in many a sermon, the emphasis rightly falls on the shattering, on the brokenness, on the depravity, on our sin and the way it warps our reasoning and our communicating and our relationships. But here in James 3.9, the emphasis is not on the marring of God's image, but on the fact that the image does in fact remain. And because it remains, the point we have been making is that it is a deep affront to God when we sin against other people, all of whom bear his image. Does God care about how we treat the planet and how we treat the animals? Absolutely. And some of us maybe need to be a little more aware of that than we are. But I assert to you without any hesitation that God cares about how you and I treat people infinitely more. God cares about how you and I treat one another infinitely more because though God loves his creation and will renew it, God did not stamp his image on the whales in the Atlantic or on the lions of Zimbabwe or on the mountains that we all enjoy so much. He stamped his image on the human being sitting next to you in the pews. It is your fellow man who has been made in the likeness of God. And that's why we observe Sanctity of Human Life Sunday and why Michelle is with us this morning and why all those baby bottles are piled up on the foyer table. Because we have a problem in this country with telling young women and sometimes telling ourselves that babies are just clumps of cells who are sometimes best swept out of the way for convenience sake just like the cockroaches in your basement. And while it's valid to say 
that we might be sweeping away the next Abraham Lincoln or the next Gladys Alward or the next Martin Lloyd-Jones. And so we shouldn't do this. I assert to you that we have to be able to say something more than that. Because while that reasoning is true and valid, at the end of the day, it's merely pragmatic. Let's save the babies because some of them might make the world a better place. It's the same reason why some people don't want to save the babies, because they think it will make the world a better place. But if that's our line of reasoning, what do we say to the mother who knows that her child isn't going to be the next great doctor or missionary because she's already been told the child is going to have Down syndrome? The child has a deadly heart disease. The child has no arms or legs. Pragmatism won't work then, will it? And it won't work for the person who is convinced that the potential of my child, be what it may, I just don't want to sacrifice what I'm going to have to sacrifice to carry and raise this child. Pragmatism won't save that little boy or girl image bearer of God. And so what are we left with? Either millions of aborted babies and soon millions of dead elderly people as well sacrificed on the altar of pragmatism or a radical conviction that every child and every old lady in the nursing home and every old man in a wheelchair has been made in the likeness of Almighty God and that when we trifle with them, we trifle with Him. And therefore, the conviction that every human being carries in his soul a weight of dignity that means I shouldn't even call him an ugly name, much less suck the life out of the womb or inject her with a poison that will get her out of my hair in her old age and out of the government's budget. Because when I deface the image, I am defaming the God to whom it belongs. And brothers and sisters, this is so important. Everyone you see, and even the little unborn ones whom you cannot see, all of them have been made in the likeness of God and are therefore worthy of dignity, just as James describes in our text this morning. Their identity is not first that they are black or that they are white or that they are an immigrant or that they are unborn or that they are elderly or that they are male or that they are female or even that they make the world a better place. Their identity is that they are an image bearer of the one who made everything you see and everything you don't see and indeed who made you. They have been made in the likeness of God, James says. And so can I urge you, Any racist feelings or prejudices you may harbor are wholly incompatible with the Word of God. When you look down upon someone or make judgments about them simply because of the color of their skin, your attitude is an affront not just to them, but to God in whose image they have been made. And can I say to you as well that whatever you think about our national borders and about those who seek to immigrate across them, whichever side you come down on, and I freely admit I don't know enough about it to form an intelligent opinion. But can I urge you, whatever your opinion is, it needs to be held with the conviction that those people on the outside of the border and even the people who have crossed it illegally are, just like you, made in the image of God. So that whatever you think about people coming in or out, an attitude of disdain for, quote, all these foreigners is an affront to God who created them in his own image as assuredly as he created us fortunate Americans. And can I urge you especially today not to forget about the unborn who have been made in the likeness of God. 
It is an affront to God and surely a grief to him as well that image bearer after image bearer continues to be snuffed out in our land. And today is a day when we remind ourselves of that fact especially and when we urge ourselves to do something about it. So please take one of those baby bottles and fill it up with change or bills to support the work that Life Forward does in our city or send them a check in the mail. Or volunteer at one of their centers bringing hope to young mothers. Or do something else as well to promote the sanctity of human life made in the likeness of God. Consider adoption so that women who want to carry their baby but who can't care for their baby will have an option. Leverage your vote for the sake of life. Counsel a friend to keep her baby or his baby. It's not enough for Christians to stand around murmuring about all these terrible people who kill babies. Indeed, sometimes that kind of grumbling turns into the very poison that James warns us about in our text today. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men. And that's neither godly nor does it accomplish anything of real value for the unborn or for anyone else. But there are all sorts of positive things that we can do. And Life Forward is a wonderful resource right here in our own backyard for doing that. So please put your hand to the plow with them. And let me tell you one of the things I love most about Life Forward, and that is that they're not just concerned about life here and now, but that they're in the ministry of promoting eternal life, that they share Christ and his gospel with their clients. That's so encouraging. To know, and it's vital because, as we said earlier, mankind is fallen. Every person in these pews, every person that walks through their doors, every person that you will see is broken, morally shattered, so much so that while he or she reflects God's image, they cannot do one thing, and you can't either, to fix the way that you have broken that image. Nor can you do anything to save yourself from the deadly eternal consequences of your sin. But God has done something that the folks at Life Forward are eager to share with people and that I'm eager to share with you before we finish. Man is broken. Man cannot recover himself. Man cannot repair the shatteredness in his soul. He cannot restore the image of God to its former glory and give God through his life the praise that God deserves. But God is in the world doing exactly these things through the gospel of his Son. Isn't that what the New Testament teaches? Doesn't Romans 8 tell us that the goal of the gospel is that we would be conformed to the image of his Son? Did you hear it, that word image? God has sent His Son into the world and He sends the gospel of His Son to us so that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. And what do we know about the image of His Son? Well, what does the Apostle Paul tell us about Jesus over in the book of Colossians? It tells us that He is the image of the invisible God. There it is again, that word. Jesus is the image image bearer of the divine. In fact, Jesus actually is fully divine himself, Colossians 2.9. And so when Paul tells us in Colossians that Jesus is the image of God and indeed that Jesus is God, and then when we turn around and read in Romans 8 that God in the gospel is making us into Jesus' image, 
Well, then you see that what God is doing in the gospel is restoring the mirror that we have shattered, removing all the graffiti and restoring the statue, as it were, by making us like Jesus. God is restoring the image of himself in our souls. One of our former neighbors is a professional art restorer, which means that her job is to take pieces of art which have been damaged by time or maybe by light or otherwise, and to use skilled techniques, expert techniques, to restore the art to something of its original beauty. And that seems impossible to me, just thinking about it from my uninitiated perspective, to see a piece of art that is all faded and damaged by light or smoke, and then to think that it could look like it looked when it first came off of the, onto the campus, canvas but she has all the tools and she has all the know-how and she has all the patience that it must take to work and work and meticulously work some more on a damaged image until it is restored to its former glory and here's what God is doing in the gospel only on a far more complex scale In his bag of tools, he has just the right turns of providence, just the right numbers of difficulties and encouragements, just the right mixture of biblical promises, commandments, and warnings, all of which he works into this lifelong process of restoring the marred image of himself in the soul of his people. And he never doesn't have the right tool, And he never finds that the work is beyond recovery. And he never fails to finish and to finish perfectly what he began. You may have the most poisonous tongue imaginable. Or you may have used it like a sword even this morning. Or you may be one of those people who laments that you participated in the abortion of a child made in the likeness of God. So that this sermon has been painful for you to bear. But I tell you that if you come to Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness under his blood and God has every tool in his bag to restore you and to conform you to the lovely image of Jesus. I've said hard things today about our sins, maybe about your sins, and God says hard things about our sins, but he is also in the happy business of forgiveness and reclamation. And I urge you to run to him and trust this mercy of his in Christ Jesus. And let me remind you as we draw to a close that the most expensive investment he has made in this reclamation project is that he gave the life of his own dear son to purchase a whole boatload of damaged art from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and to declare it once again his own. In order to restore us to his image, God sent his son in our image, in our nature, so that he might give his life a ransom for many and bring us into God's restoration studio. And here is the proof, not only that God loves us, but that he loves his image in us. He was willing to send his son to a bloody cross to restore that image. And I submit to you that if God so loves his image, then you should love it too. You should love it in the people who look differently than you. You should love it in the people whom society thinks are no longer useful. You should love it in the unborn. And you should love it even in the lives of people who are busy 
snuffing them out. And you should love it in the lives of all sorts of other sinners too, including the ones in this room whose tongues are full of deadly poison and who sin in all sorts of other ways as well. Praise God that he loves sinners in spite of themselves and praise God that he loves his own image in us and that he is in the business of restoring that image by the power of the gospel. Won't you join him in the restoration studio? Won't you embrace this Jesus who took on our image so that we might take on his? Won't you embrace this Jesus who died for our sins so that the shatter lines in the image of God might slowly be smoothed away on the mirror of your life? Won't you join God in his restoration studio seeking that he would conform you to the image of his son and thus of himself? If so, then you'll surely love and learn to love that image in others. So much so that more and more you'll begin to prize and defend the image of God wherever you see it. Indeed, if you love the image of God imprinted upon the souls of men, then far from wanting to curse those men, you will want to speak words to them instead that will point them to Jesus, who bears that image perfectly and by whose gospel God can restore it in their souls as well. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3, We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image.